Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand, and we'll begin in prayer. Tomorrow, for you feast lovers, is the commemoration of the entrance of the Mother of God in the Temple, sometimes called the Presentation of the Mother of God in the Temple. It's a holy day on our calendar, one of the 12 great feasts during the year. It no longer is a, a major holy day in the Western Church, unfortunately. All of the holy days of the Western Church came from the East, by the way, except one, Christmas. That we took from the West. And, uh, John Chrysostom uh, imported that into Syria in about the 4th century. Before that time, we celebrated Christ's birth, his baptism in the Jordan River, and the manifestation of the Magi on January the 6th. That was the celebration of Christ's birth. So it's manifestation, manifestation. Not so much concerned about the, um, the physical birth, but in any way, about the feast day of the presentation of the Mother of God. The story goes from the Proto-Evangelium of James that Joachim and Anna were elderly people. Joachim was a wealthy shepherd. And he had numerous sheep in his flocks, and he would be very charitable, giving some to the poor, some for his own use, and some, of course, for offerings in the temple. But one day when he went to offer his sheep before the priest, they rejected his offering and said, God must have cursed you because you and your wife are barren, you have no children, and how can you hope to bear the promise from the Messiah? And Joachim, of course, was devastated. And he went back to the field to, to, to pray. At the same moment of his prayer, his wife Elizabeth, who was Anna rather, who was barren and advanced in years, was praying. An angel appeared to both of them announcing that their prayers had been heard before God and they would conceive and bear a child. They were overjoyed. And they ran to greet one another, to share the good news, not knowing the angel had appeared to both of them. And they embraced when they saw one another. There's a very lovely icon, the icon of the conception of the Virgin Mary, showing Joachim and Anna embracing. And, of course, in a matter of time, after nine months, the Mother of God was born after the normal course of human reproduction. But Joachim and Anna, ever mindful of God's goodness to them, made a vow that they would dedicate the child, whatever it may be, a boy or a girl, to the service of God. And so at a very tender age, maybe eight or nine years old, she was brought to fulfill the vow to be presented in the temple. That's tomorrow's feast day. And when she entered the temple, brought by the young girls of the neighborhood surrounding their carrying candles in the daytime, as was the custom in those days, she went into the temple, and there the elder priest Zachary the husband of Elizabeth, was there to receive her. She walked by the priest Zachary into the holy place, reserved to the priests alone, into the holy of holies. No one had ever gone in there, only the high priest. Once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and would say the name of God, the Virgin Mary, who was destined to become the living temple of the Word of God, enters into the holy of holies 
and bringing with her the grace of the Holy Spirit. But she carried in her womb the one who would become the living, or she became rather, I should say, the living temple of the word of God herself. And in our tradition, women do not enter into the holy place out of respect for the mother of God who entered into the holy of holies and thereby undoing the curse that Eve had unleashed upon our human race, the mother of God's obedience and her holiness, present in the temple now, brings God's Holy Spirit to the temple of the law, which was bereft of the presence of God. Now with those thoughts in mind, and after this big preoration, let us bow our heads and ask the intercession of the Holy Mother of God, whose presentation in the temple we commemorate today. Today is the prelude of the beneficence of God and the announcement of salvation to mankind. The Virgin Mother of God appears openly today in the temple of the Lord, bringing with her the grace of the Most Holy Spirit. Therefore the angels of heaven are proclaiming, this is the holy living tabernacle of God. For the prayers of the Most Holy Mother of God, o Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy upon us and save us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our speaker tonight is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, where he is director of the Respect Life Office. Father Schenk was raised Jewish. He was baptized a Christian at 16 years old and was ordained in the Evangelical and Anglican traditions. A former Anglican minister, Father Schenk is founder and chairman of the National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. He and his family came into the Catholic Church in 2004, and he was ordained a priest in 2010. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Schenk. Thank you, Deacon. Father Deacon, I also have a booklet tonight that tells the story of a 72-year journey through three generations of my family to the glorious Catholic Church. I'll tell you the story behind this. I, I was pressed by dear Marcus Grodi, uh, such a mensch. Um, <laughs> and he just pressed me for three years, relentlessly, to write our story for him. So I did that, and then they give us permission to reprint. The National Pro-Life Center on Capitol Hill uh, has been just 60 paces from the Supreme Court's private entrance and exit since 2004. And um, we are the only Christian mission at the United States Supreme Court. The staff parking lot is behind our house, so they have to pass by us every day. And we don't ignore that opportunity. Um, but by his marvelous grace. God has opened the doors for us there at the Supreme Court. And our mission is to give the justices and their high-level staff the information, the education, and the inspiration they need to better form their consciences so they will make better decisions. Now, we leave one of those justices to Father Paul Scalia. <laughs> but everybody else, we take care of. Um, we have conducted a mission of friendship evangelization there. And we do this strategically by putting 
people who take their faith very seriously as close as possible to the justices and uh, to build a rapport and friendship which has led to prayer. We've been invited into justices' chambers for prayer. I know you want to know which one. Uh, we've had prayer in a number of chambers, but the one that touches my heart the most was the invitation from Justice Ginsburg to pray with her on the eve of her cancer surgery. So this has been a real mission of mercy at the Supreme Court, and I ask you to pray for our staff. We have five staff members on the Hill, and uh, I like to boast that we have five staff members, some of whom are family people, full-time mission at the Supreme Court and the uh, U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, by extension. And we keep the House and our program, including the only pro-life prayer service that takes place within the Capitol itself every year, the National Memorial for the Preborn and their mothers and fathers, which is a two-and-a-half-hour-long prayer vigil in the Capitol for 500 people, restricted to that number only because that's the biggest room they'll give us. But it's the only pro-life prayer service that takes place within the Capitol itself. That's a, one of the many things that we do on Capitol Hill. We do all of that all year round, literally, I tell you truthfully, for less than the starting salary of a rookie lawyer on Capitol Hill. So I like to boast that we do all of that and our five missionaries as well. So pray for us. We miss the TARP money. We miss stimulus. Uh, we're, we're dependent entirely. We didn't file the paperwork on time, but we, we, we're dependent entirely on the hearts of the people of God to uh, continue this missionary work. But we best get to our subject at hand tonight. I have to tell you, when Deacon called and left the message in my diocesan office and inquired about my coming tonight and gave me the topic. My secretary, who is just so diligent, she's absolutely marvelous. I don't call her secretary, I call her my administrative assistant. And uh, I came in and she said, you got a call from Virginia. They want you to come and speak. And the topic is, seize the Jews. <laughs> I said, are you sure? She said, I think that's what he said. She said. It does sound like a strange topic, doesn't it? I'm not sure what the deacon said, but uh, he must have said it in Sicilian. All right. I have a passage from the Gospels that I would like to read to you tonight. And I don't know about you, but I just find it hard to remain seated while the gospel is being read. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, 
and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go and tell your husband to come here. I have no husband, Jesus said. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The Gospel of the Lord. That Christianity arose out of Judaism is not in dispute. Jesus Christ, the apostles, the Christian scriptures were Jewish in origin and identity. Indeed, the earliest Christianity shared many, if not most, of its religious elements, communal structures, and history with the Jewish people. Inherent in this commonality are theological concepts. Although Christianity would diverge from Judaism in central doctrines such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, it nonetheless inherited its principal theological truths from Pharisaical, later Rabbinical, Judaism, the Hebrew Scriptures, and from the Temple worship. When Jesus was asked by a scribe that was soon to be known as a rabbi, which mitzvah, commandment, is first of all? He answered, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, Deachavta et Adonai Elohecha, Uvachal Levecha, Uvachal Nevshecha, Uvachal Meadecha. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now this was a reiteration or a recitation of Deuteronomy 6.4, the enduring creed of the people of Israel, the Jews. Now in doing so, Dr. Edersheim, the Anglican Jewish scholar of the 19th century, wrote that our Lord quoted the well-remembered words which every Jew was bound to repeat in his devotions and which were ever to be on his lips, living or dying, as the most important expression of faith. In the words of Rabbi Michael Hilton and Father Gordian Marshall, reciting the Shema 
is sometimes called in rabbinic literature accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. A recognition of the importance of the concepts contained in the Shema, this creed, ideas which sum up the essence of the entire Torah. And in the estimation of Father Raymond Brown, this means that decades after Christian beginnings, Gentiles were still being taught to pray a Jewish prayer as part of the fundamental demand placed by God. So Jesus' recitation of the Shema indicates the common theology between Christianity and Judaism. And it is not only with rabbinic Judaism that the earliest Christianity shares a common theological tradition. Especially in the New Testament, Christianity draws themes about God, the Messiah, Christ, the liturgy and sacraments directly from temple Judaism. Father Joseph told us that right here a moment ago in that marvelous catechesis on the presentation of the Mother of God. This is drawn directly from the imagery and the place, the sacred precincts of Habet El, the temple. And these contribute important types and themes to the bedrock of Christian revelation. According to Rabbi Jacob Neusner, he's at Bard College now. He was at Yale. Probably the most outstanding American Jewish theologian in the last 50 years. Dr. Neusner sees a clear nexus between rabbinical Judaism Temple Judaism, and early Christianity. He writes this, The catalytic event in the formation of the kind of Judaism we now know as normative. Think of the Judaism you understand today. That is, the Judaism that took shape in the documents produced by rabbis from the 1st through the 7th centuries was the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., CE, common era, AD, for us Latin Rite Catholics. <laughs> that same event proved decisive in the formation of Christianity as an autonomous and self-conscious community of the Israelite faith. So you see what Professor Rabbi Neusner is saying here? That it was the destruction of the temple, the end of the temple worship that gave birth to Judaism as we know it today, and to Christianity as we know it today. The historical departure for both puts the temple right at the heart of it. Rabbinical Judaism survived the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as the universal expression of non-Christian Israelite religion. Yet, at the time of the New Testament, it had already begun to consolidate the other forms of Judaism. It was not as yet the Judaism we know today. New Testament Judaism was quite varied and included a variety of theological systems that later, after the destruction of the temple, coalesced into, deferred to, the rabbinic form of Judaism that we are most familiar with today.
Now, we simply cannot consider the relationship between Judaism and Christianity without looking at the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 21 and verse 40. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 21 and verse 40. This is a Catholic institute, isn't it? I hear Bible pages rustling. Very good. Deacon, you've trained them well. (laughs) Trained them well. So in the Acts of the Apostles, 21st chapter, 40th verse says, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Ish Yehuda Anochi, Ba'ir Tarsus, Ba'kerikula, Yadute Abair, Hadzot, Gadulati, Laregali, Gamaliel. Now, you'll remember some of that from Hebrew school, <laughs> won't you? I am a Jew, born at Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you all are this day. This is St. Paul's own description of his conversion. But before we go much further, we should pause to consider the true meaning of this term, conversion. Today we use it to mean one of two things. A heathen turning to God, or someone changing religions. In Paul's case, it was neither. His conversion was something else altogether. For Paul was not a heathen. Again, let's let him speak for himself. In the letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. If any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law or the Torah, blameless. So Paul says plainly that he is a faithful, zealous, Torah-observant Jew. More importantly, he is a Pharisee. Now, to understand Paul, we must understand what it meant to be a Pharisee. So what is a Pharisee? The word comes from the Hebrew parashim, separated. That is, not mixing with the sinful world. A Pharisee was a descendant of the faithful Jews in the time of the Maccabees. We read it in the Old Testament book of Maccabees. A great apostasy of the Jews had occurred during the reign of the pagan emperor Antiochus Epiphanius, who considered himself 
a god. It's one of the afflictions of political office. <laughs> he made the Jewish religion illegal and ordered the Jews to give up their customs and their worship. Many did, out of fear or compromise. In reaction, a pious priest named Matatayu, Matthew, and his five sons, nicknamed the Maccabees, fought back and took Jerusalem and the Holy Temple from the pagans and reestablished the Jewish kingdom. The followers of the Maccabees, called Hasidim, the saints, fought long and hard to rid Israel of idolatry and apostasy and to make the Jews obedient to the Torah. Over time, they became parashim, the separated ones. So you see, Paul's history was a noble one. His predecessors were responsible for preserving the Jewish people, their nation, and their religion. Their teachers were called rabbis, and they taught the common people. If it weren't for the Pharisees, the Torah, God's law, would have been forsaken and the Jewish people forgotten. So don't be so hard on the Pharisees. But as it happens, over time, many Pharisees lost sight of their original mission. They elevated the fastidious observance of laws and customs over love of God and love of neighbor. To use Paul's own words, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And this brings us to Paul's conversion. We noted that Paul was neither a heathen, nor did he change his religion. Saul the Pharisee honored God and zealously defended the religion of the Old Testament, believing that the followers of Jesus were turning Jews away from the Torah and traditions of their fathers. They opposed the church. Now his motives were pure in the sense that he wanted to be sure his Jewish people didn't forsake God's law. He had an illustrious patrimony, and he believed what he was doing was right until he was confronted by the truth himself. Before his conversion, Rabbi Saul's vision was narrow, focused exclusively on his own tribe and nation. But after being knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, he was changed received new sight, and became the Apostle Paul. He confronted evil and transformed society. He embraced the whole world for Christ. Those he had despised, he came to love. But how is it that this zealous, rock-ribbed, pious Jew, a Hebrew, uh, by the way, we keep translating this Hebrew of Hebrews. It doesn't make sense. It's singular. Hebrew of Hebrew. What does that mean? It means that he was not a compromiser. He spoke Hebrew in the Holy Land. The others played around with Greek. Others, maybe Syriac. Not Paul. 
he spoke Hebrew. He was a Palestinian Jew. And so uh, how was it that this Hebrew-speaking Jew could be transformed into the apostle to the Gentiles? How could that happen? St. Thomas Aquinas taught that man's true nature and God's grace are not in conflict with each other, but that grace builds on nature. In other words, God takes who we are and perfects that rather than replaces it. Grace and nature are not juxtaposed to one another. Rather, they work together. So it is with Saul the Pharisee and Paul the Apostle. God didn't obliterate Saul. Rather, by grace, God made him who he was originally created to be. Conversion in this case is not so much to forsake one thing and become something else. Instead, it is to return to the source, to be restored rather than replaced. The Hebrew word captures this so marvelously, shuvi, uh, to repent or to convert is shuvi. And what it means is to turn back to go back to where you should have been all along. You wandered far. You need to come back. So it's a matter of restoration rather than replacement. Now, look what Paul says about himself in Romans 1. 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So in giving Paul the grace for conversion, God was perfecting him, leading him to choose what he was called to be before he was born. In his letter to the Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 15, Boy, Deacon really prepped you for this. I'm just firing out the scripture passages to you, aren't I, tonight? Letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born had called me through his grace. Whoa! So the work that God has for us was prepared before we were even born. Paul's returning to the source, to the true meaning of his patrimony. And he's being open to others, to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now just to show how grace builds on nature, let's go back to where we started. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, the Acts of the Apostles 22 and 3. I am a Jew, born at Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, which is Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Now, when I was going to Hebrew school as a kid, uh, we studied Babylonian Aramaic. Not every sixth grader's most exciting topic. But we read the Babylonian Aramaic because uh, it was the language of the Talmud, that great volume of Jewish learning. 
we knew that Gamaliel was directly associated with the Talmud. I'll tell you that in just a second. So this fact that Saul was taught and trained by Rabbi Gamaliel, uh, Rav Gamaliel, that's like being an arch rabbi, is a key to his apostolic vocation. Pious, orthodox Jews who would speak only Hebrew, with a little bit of Aramaic on the side, and never the language of the Goyim. Paul referred to himself as a kosher Hebrew-speaking Jew. But because he was born in Cilicia, he was also a Roman. Now his teacher, Gamaliel I, Hanasi, the prince, was the great-grandson of Rabbi Hillel. I have an identical twin brother. His name is Hillel. His Hebrew name is Hillel. Named after this great rabbi. And he was the great... This is Gamaliel. Paul's teacher was the great-great-grandfather of Rabbi Judah Hanasi. Rabbi Judah Hanasi. That doesn't excite you? (laughs) You've forgotten so soon? These are all the founders of rabbinic Judaism. Gamaliel was the first to be called Hanasi, which designated the head of the Sanhedrin and a universal authority in Judaism. Gamaliel today, magnificent name in Judaism. Now, all of this was just introduction. Now I get into the subject of the night. Really? You thought I was joking. You thought this was shtiklach. All of this, I give you, I mean, we could go on. This could be a series of 12 lectures. Just laying the groundwork, tip of the iceberg, to give you the close association between the founding of rabbinic Judaism and the origins of the church. But let's skip ahead now to the cycle of Jewish holy days, which Paul, the apostles, the Holy Family, Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, our Lord, fully participated in. There's a very interesting tale that comes from the Holocaust. And it is not told by Catholics, never even heard of. And it is not told by Lutherans. It's told by Jews. It's a tale told by Jews. And this is the tale. That after the May laws were passed, a Nazi appeared in church one Sunday morning and commanded from the back of the church the attention of the congregation. And he said, it is suspected that the church is hiding Jews. And from the back of the church, the Nazi in his austere brown shirt and jack boots commanded that if there are any Jews in this congregation, 
They must report to me immediately. And there wasn't a stir. Everyone was frozen in fear. This is the Jewish story that's told from the Holocaust. And at that, the figure on the cross came down and made his way through the center of the church and presented himself to the soldier. And then next came St. Joseph and the Blessed Mother down to the back of the church and left with the Nazi. That's a Jewish story. That's not a Catholic story. It's not a Protestant story. That's a Jewish story. I heard that when I was a kid. When I was a child, I heard that story. The festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, Hanukkah, are specifically referenced in the life of Jesus and the New Testament. Sukkot and Yom Kippur are alluded to. Now, you may not have heard of at least some of these. So let me give you their New Testament names. Passover, which uh, in one Greek and one Latin Bible is translated as Easter. Pentecost, the dedication of the temple, that's number three. Tabernacles and atonement. Now they sound familiar, don't they? Each one plays a very important role in the lives of Jesus, the apostles, the Holy Family, and the first Christians. Let's be clear. There is nothing un-Jewish or anti-Jewish about the New Testament. The Judaism of the New Testament is essential to it. Without Judaism, there is no Christianity. So the Holy Days... That's right. That's what we were talking about. Now, Judaism signifies the sanctity of the universe, of time and of life, by marking the sequence of holy days throughout the year. Beginning with Pesach, Passover, in the spring, then Shavuot, Pentecost, in early summer, then the great trilogy of high holy days, Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And Sukkot, Tabernacles, in autumn. Hanukkah, the dedication of the temple, is a minor, but nonetheless significant feast in winter. By the way, I point out all the time, that the only Bible, or let's say Bibles, that contain the story of Hanukkah is the Catholic and the Eastern Christian Bible. The only ones. Well, all right, throw in the Ethiopian, okay. But for us, here in the West, the one we're used to is the Catholic Bible. And it's found in the book of 1 Maccabees, as you know. And where else? In the Gospel of John. We'll get there in a moment. The only two places. The story of Hanukkah is not told in the Jewish Bible. I thought you'd find that funny. I thought it was funny. I... Now, Luke tells us in his Gospel 
that Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Luke 22 and verse 8. In the Acts, it says of the apostles, when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, had come, they were all together in one place, celebrating Shavuot, Pentecost. Do you remember what happened on that Pentecost? We usually say the first Pentecost. <laughs> it was not the first Pentecost. <laughs> It was about the 435,000th Pentecost. But they were, Shavuot, they were in the temple. Do you remember what happened? What happened? The Holy Spirit descended. But what did they do? What were they doing? They were speaking in tongues. Well, they were speaking with tongues. They were speaking what? Why? What, what possible connection did that have to Pentecost? Why would they be speaking in many languages which they had not learned? Why would they do that on Shavuot? Because Shavuot was also combined with Simchat Torah. See? We'll go on. What was Simchat Torah? Simchat Torah literally means the rejoicing over the law. And it was at the time of Shavuot, at this period. They were once separated, but by this time they had been combined. Pentecost, Shavuot, was the feast that the Jews recalled the giving of the Torah by God on Mount Sinai. And you know what the Talmud says? That Talmud that I studied as a boy? That it was originally given on Sinai in all the languages of the nations. So no wonder they were speaking in tongues on Pentecost. Because this was the fulfillment of the new law. This was the rejoicing of the new law. And so the Holy Spirit, just as he did when he gave the law on Sinai in the 70 languages of the nations, so the apostles now proclaim the new law, the gospel, in the same 70 languages of the world. Now during one of Paul's journeys, which was taken in autumn, it refers to the fast having just passed. I was trying not to alliterate that coupling, but I, I couldn't achieve, I kept moving things and words and the fast that just passed. Then I thought, no, that doesn't work. I'll say the past fast. No, that was even worse. So it refers to the fast having just passed. Now this is more than likely, in fact I'm convinced, that this is a reference to Yom Kippur, which was simply called in the Talmud, the fast. 
or Hayoma, the day. That was Acts 27.9, by the way. In John's Gospel, it says that it was the feast of the dedication, Hanukkah, Hanuk is the Hebrew word to point or to designate or to direct, to dedicate. Hanuk. Always found it interesting in Proverbs 22.6 is the promise if you raise up a child in the way that he should go, when he grows old, he will not regret it. You know this, Proverbs 22.6? Hanuk. If you point, direct, designate, devote, dedicate. Same word. That was an asterisk, extracurricular. You get <laughs> bonus points if you remember that. But it's in John... 10.22, John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 22, that it refers to the Feast of the Dedication, which is Hanukkah. And it was Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple. Now, just as the church year traces the life of Jesus and so draws us into his life as we walk together with Christ on the road to salvation, so the ancient Jewish calendar reenacted God's work of salvation for the people of Israel. The feasts recounted for them the works of the Lord on their behalf, but they also pointed to Christ. In Romans, Paul says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Romans chapter 5, verse 4. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And in the Acts, the risen Christ tells the apostles that on Shavuot, Pentecost, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, all the nations. Hagoyim, all the nations. Of Yom Kippur, the book of Hebrews says, but into the second only the high priest goes. Father Joseph was referring to that at the beginning. But into the second, the Holy of Holies, Kadosh HaKadoshim, into the Holy of Holies, the high priest goes, but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hayoma, the day. Yom Kippur, the day 
of atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 7 through 12. Hebrews 9, 7 through 12. It's erroneously called the letter to the Hebrews. It's actually a lecture. It is. It's a homily. When people had much greater attention spans than we have today. Today, it's 25 homilies. So the feasts of Israel are a wonderful precursor to the unfolding of the prophecies of Christ. Like a treasure map, they mysteriously laid out the way to the cross. And still today, they witness to the coming of the Messiah. Here it is, short list. Pesach. Christ the Passover lamb. Hog Hamatzot. I know you're saying, that's unfair. You never used that before. That's the unleavened bread. When we say Pesach, it's fine. It includes the unleavened bread. But I want to call your attention to the Hog Hamatzot. Christ, the Redeemer, cleanses us from sins. Hag Hamatzot, the unleavened bread. Christ the Redeemer cleanses us from sins. Shavuot and the first fruits. The church and Simchat Torah fulfilled on Pentecost when the disciples spoke the 70 languages of the nations. Shavuot the church fulfilled on Pentecost when the disciples spoke the 70 languages. The church, rather, fulfilled Simchat Torah when the disciples spoke the 70 languages of the Gentile nations. Rosh Hashanah. I didn't translate that for you earlier. Rosh Hashanah simply means the head of the year. Here, most appropriately, Christ the King. The Feast of Trumpets. Christ the King. Yom Kippur. Christ is priest and victim of our atonement. Priest and victim of our atonement. Sukkot. Tabernacles. The coming Christ, the incarnation. St. John's Gospel, John 1.14. And the Word was made flesh and... Ah! That's the Angelus. Tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. The Angelus is taken from, and it's proper to say dwelt in the larger sense of the word, but the actual word means to tabernacle among us. So Sukkot is the coming of Christ, the incarnation, the descending and dwelling. In fact, there's a good Aramaic word here, Shechinta. Shechinta. Perhaps you've heard the word Shekhinah. 
That's the Hebrew from rabbinic Judaism. Shehinta is the Aramaic. It's a little more specific, a little more particular. Shehinta is God descending and dwelling in place. So, John 1.14 tells us that Christ fulfills the Shehinta, the descending and dwelling of God. And then Hanukkah. Christ, the true temple. Christ, the altar, the mercy seat. In Romans 3.25, Paul tells us this rock-ribbed, Hebrew-speaking, Israeli rabbi, Hasid, Parsh, Pharisee. Paul tells us in Romans 3.25 that God took Christ's face and put it forward as the mercy seat. That's what Paul says in the Hebrew New Testament. In the Hebrew New Testament, he says, God put Christ's face forward as the mercy seat. Hanukkah, Christ the temple, altar, mercy seat, and true sanctuary. As Paul said, the things that were written beforehand were written for our instruction. Thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you very much, Father, for an excellent presentation. Should we invite Father Paul Shank back again to the Institute of Catholic Culture? We're going to take a short break. Father, would you take some questions? Okay, we're going to take a short break. Father, you mentioned that the Torah was given in 70 languages of the nations. That's what the tradition is. And then you spoke of the disciples at Pentecost speaking in tongues, and, and I think you were referring to those languages. Uh, was that a metaphorical statement, or were they in fact speaking 70 different languages? Rabbinical literature, Hebrew literature in general, would use the reference of 70 languages as a symbolic number to refer to all the languages of the nations. Now, as that tradition goes, that story which is told is that God gave the Torah on Sinai in all the 70 languages, but only the people of Israel answered, Amen. And so they were, they were given the Torah. They became the custodians of the Torah because they answered in the affirmative, Amen. Amen, the Hebrew word, comes from two root words, emet, and emunah, emunah, faithful, or faithfulness, emet, truth, it is faithful and true. Put the two together, it becomes amen. Or if you're from an Eastern European synagogue, oimen. <laughs> Means the same thing. Very simple request. Could you at some point get uh, 
Sabatino a decoder ring of some, the various feasts and how to spell them. Uh, we just couldn't keep up with some of them. All Sorry. Right. I'll be I'll be posting those on our uh, on our online learning center, which I'll, I didn't. I'll send you the last page. Great. Of my notes. And Great. There's, there's if you haven't been on our online learning center, I'm posting things all over the place on there, almost twice, three times a day, referring to the topic at hand. So make sure you're checking there on a regular basis to our website, online learning center, and then take a look at the articles I'm posting. R you know, write them as as you can. That's how Yiddish was invented. It's true. Yiddish is basically 15th century German mixed with some Polish written in Hebrew. Um, it's mixed with some Hebrew and Aramaic also. So it's mostly 15th century German combined with some Polish with Hebrew vocabulary and with uh, Aramaic on the side. And you mix it all up together, it becomes Yiddish. Now... <laughs> Ladino is another story altogether, uh, which is about 15th century Spanish written in Hebrew. My favorite biblical language of all is Geuz, which is the uh, liturgical language of the Ethiopian church, and it is Hebrew vocabulary written in Greek letters. So that's, you can't get better than that. Okay. Father, I have written down here, I wonder if this is correct, the end of the temple gave birth to both rabbinical Judaism, which I understand that part, and early Christianity. I'm not sure what you, as whether a, I was picking up a, what as, you meant. As distinct communities. See, they, the, the departure takes place from that seminal moment. Um, I know it's hard for us to comprehend but the temple was still central. Notice, uh, before its destruction, the temple was not rejected and despised by the first Christians in Jerusalem. Notice how many times they're in the temple. Notice how many times they're around the temple. The temple is not an anti-Christ symbol. It's where the altar and the laver and the blood sacrifices are made. And we would say, well, why would a Christian have anything to do with that? The, the true sacrifice is Christ himself and the cynical, right? But you see, those early Jewish Christians saw Christ, their Savior, as the fulfillment of those symbols. They are the shadow, he is the reality. So... Uh, the temple remained a kind of sort of central place that Christians and Jews uh, were around until the destruction, the final destruction, and the church went one way and Judaism went the other. So that it, it created the two distinct communities, so to speak. This is from a historical point of view. Um, Father, I was really interested by your explanation of the origin of the Pharisees. I've always thought that the word came from pirush or lefaresh, which means to interpret or to kind of disper uh, you know, parse out the meaning of words. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that is correct or, or if the two origins are, are kind of incompatible. Well, <laughs> as a matter of fact, since you mentioned this, um, that is proposed as a, a kind of later explanation. The, the Hebrew words are so powerful, they're so important, and, and much more is made of them, as you know, in rabbinical reflection. 
the association of words, even the, the similar sounds of words. And so the meaning of those words are ascribed, and yes, I'm aware of this as a later tradition, because, of course, rabbinical Judaism became a Judaism of the written word, of the exposition and meaning of words. So parash, the, the commentary, would be what the rabbis would do. And so kind of came to designate that as a later. But then, of course, the earlier was the separated ones. So both are true, both meanings. Father, I was wondering if your twin brother also became Catholic or the rest of your family, what their reaction was to my, your conversion? <clears throat> my uh, brother is a, uh, an evangelical Protestant minister for a little while longer. Um, <laughs> And uh, every time I talk to him, he's sounding more Catholic. <laughs> so um, we'll see. Pray Fa for him. Father, we have a question from uh, writing yeah. Kathleen from Michigan, who is asking, if animal sacrifice formed such a large part of Jewish worship before the fall of the temple, what, if anything, has taken its place among the Jewish community? Okay. Well, in a very general sense, Judaism today says that no sacrifices are made because the holy altar in Jerusalem is no longer standing. Without the altar, the sacrifices are not efficacious. So there's some exception to that, uh, but not much. Instead, it is fasting and religious observance and charity. These are the substitutes today for the sacrifices. Now, let's go back for a moment to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are really two streams of Judaism that are going on simultaneously. And this is really a product of historical events uh, more than anything else. But there is the temple Judaism, which is focused on the temple cultus, uh, the sacrifices, the liturgies. This is a liturgical and sacramental Judaism. And then... Uh, there is what will become the rabbinical Judaism. That comes out of Babylon. It comes out of the time of the Jews being in exile, the generations that uh, went to Babylon. And actually the largest rabbinical school and most influential is in Babylon and remains in Babylon. So that at the time of the New Testament, that's a reference point. Baghdad basically, Babylonia. The reason for that is because the Jewish people were separated from the temple, from the altar, they were without the sacrifices, they were without the liturgy and without the sacraments. And so it became a religion of the word, of the book, of the written word, and its exposition and its understanding. And in fact, there are two Talmuds, the Talmud Bibavli and the Talmud Beirushalami, the Talmud of Babylon and the Talmud of Jerusalem. The Talmud of Jerusalem is the lesser of the two. Uh, the Talmud of Babylon is the largest and carries with it the greatest authority. Even at the time of the New Testament, there was a Judaism that was based in the Beit HaTafila, the, the houses of prayer, and then there was the temple. And they weren't in conflict with each other, but they were 
sort of two kinds of ways of Jewish uh, worship and expression. Thank you very much, Father. <laughs> Father also has a, a holy card that's in the back of the Virgin Mary. I, yes, is this it? is Mary, Mother of the Divine Maternity. Oh, very nice. This is the Divine Maternity. Just a beautiful image of Our Lady. And those are available there in the back. So with that, Father, if you could offer the final blessing. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you all for coming this evening. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 6357155 and may the glory of Christ church be ever more manifest upon the earth saint john the evangelist pray for us